Please, congregation, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, verses 28 through 30 this morning. 28 through 30, under the heading of All Things for Good. All Things for Good from Romans chapter 8. We read the words of the Apostle Paul. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. Well, blessed congregation, there is so much in this life that we do not know with certainty. We don't even know what tomorrow brings. Our day of conception and birth and also our day of death are hidden from our eyes. The future of our children and grandchildren is largely unseen to us. And even with all our technologies, when the weatherman fails to predict the weather again, we are reminded that the inner workings of this world are beyond our comprehension. Last week, the Apostle Paul reminded us that there was another thing we don't know. Verse 26, we don't know how to pray according to the will of God. You see, there are times in our lives we don't know what God's will is for us. Do I go to this college or do I go to that college? Do I marry him or her or is it time to move on? You have a child maybe with special needs and you ask, what is your will for us, Lord? Physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion can seem to cloud the future God has for us. And of course, Romans 8 is written in the context of suffering. And suffering more than anything causes us to say, we don't know Your will. Lord, where are You? What are You doing? Where are You leading me? We all have questions like this. Well, Paul says, we don't know the hidden plan of God. We don't know what God is doing in our lives. The secret things of God belong to God. But in verse 28, Paul tells us what we do know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We may not know how God is working in our lives, but we do know why God is working in our lives. He has a plan. God has a purpose. And He has a place for you in His plan and purpose. Which led Ambrose, that ancient bishop of Milan, to say, if all of the Scripture were a feast, 
then this verse would be the choicest dish. Because people in Rome are suffering. They're being martyred in Rome. Forced out of the city. Don't forget, this is the city where Christians would be led into the Colosseum and fed to the lions. Burned at the stake. But the greatest comfort, Paul says, it's not in knowing every detail. The greatest comfort is not a guarantee of health and wealth and happiness in this life. The greatest comfort is that we know whatever transpires in this life is rooted in the eternal plan of God who can work all things for good. We know. We know. All things are for our good. That's our theme for our time together this morning. Not one detail of your life, Christian, works for evil. On that last day, only good will be your inheritance. Not one detail works for evil in God's people. In the end, only good will be their lot. I'm going to show you this in two points this morning. The best and the worst things for good. And then secondly, the undefeatable plan of God. The best and the worst things for good. I want you to think this morning of the best moment in your life. If you're like me, that was when your bride was walking down the aisle. And yes, Lisa paid me to say that. I'm joking. That might be the best moment of your life may be when your bride walked down the aisle. Or the birth of a child. Getting into your dream school. Getting your dream job. Think of the best moment of your life. Now I want you to think of the worst moment of your life. Maybe the betrayal by a loved one. A death in the family. Injury or ill health. Paul says... The, both of these things do not impede God's plan. But the best and the worst, the good and the evil, the suffering and the salvation, all things are actually caught up into the plan of God and work for our benefit. Now we need to be careful though when we come to verse 28 because many people read verse 28 like this. Everything works out all the time for everyone, everywhere. But that's not what Paul is saying. What is actually put in the place of emphasis is to whom this promise is given. Those who love God. And this is actually an Old Testament term. To be a lover of God. Which always described the church. Israel, His chosen people of old. The all things for good congregation is not a universal truism. That when we look at tragedies and trials and difficulties and diseases, we do not just say, all things work for good. For everyone everywhere. 
But what Paul is describing is that this is a specific promise to Christians. It's not a magical saying that we can sprinkle over life's problems, but it reflects the privileged relationship that the believer has with his God. And the inverse is true as well. That if you are not a believer, if you have rejected the Gospel promise, that God does not work all things for good. Instead, all things work for their condemnation. And so we usually save this for the end of the sermon, but we need to say this now. Are you a believer this morning? Are you trusting in Christ? Because all of life's challenges can be answered in this one sentence if you would cling to Christ and embrace Him. That for the believer, He will work it out. But don't we come to an immediate problem here? There's an elephant in this room. If God works all things for good, in the life of a believer, why were 5,000 Nigerian Christians slaughtered by Boko Haram in 2022? I know good Christian people who've experienced extreme personal setbacks, cancer, suicidal thoughts, Stillborn children. How is that good? Just because all things work for good does not mean all things are good. You need to catch that this morning. Just because all things work for good does not mean all things are good. Paul, more than anyone, knows that evil things can happen to good Christian people. He himself, the apostle to the Gentiles, caught up to the seventh heaven, a man more like Christ than any of us in this room, was said to be in constant danger. Enduring sleepless nights, hunger, anxiety. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I was thrown in prison, flogged, stoned by stones, beaten, even shipwrecked. He experienced evil. And this side of heaven, God never promised that all evil would be taken from our lives. But the promise of verse 28 is that everything that falls within the compass of a believer's life, especially suffering and adversity, actually propel us to glory. All things work together for good. And is there a single truth that the church bears stronger witness to than this? All throughout the Bible we see that it's in the darkest moments of history God produces the greatest good. When Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, forgotten in prison, we read that God was with him the whole time. 
And when he was raised up to second in command so that he could provide for his family, he learned God works all things together for good. When baby Moses was protected from the murderous plans of Pharaoh floating down the Nile, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's own palace, he learned God works all things together for good. When Esther became queen in the Medio Persian Empire, right at the moment of Jewish genocide, she learned God works all things together for good. You see, you might be aware of two things God is doing in your life, but there are 998 other things He is doing behind the scenes. And every single one is in His control and for your good. It doesn't matter if it's life or death. It doesn't matter if it's health or sickness. Victory or frustration. The promise is this. That there is not one detail in your life that works for evil, dear Christian. You may not know how, but you do know why. A personal illustration, my father has come to this church a few times, maybe you've met him. Uh, You know, it doesn't show on his son, me, but was a province champion at bodybuilding. And as a kid, uh, he, was, he was ripped. What that means for you older folks is that he was very strong. And he actually won the whole province once as the best bodybuilder. And he was a tradesman. He was a cabinet maker, very strong all of his life. And then in his 30s and his 40s, he began to develop severe neck pain from all the heavy lifting he did throughout his life. He was always a Christian. He always loved the Lord. But his affliction drove him to his knees. He will tell you, if you ask him, that it was his affliction that drew him closer to the Lord. It was the great trial that he went through that took him from passively going to church, passively reading his Bible, to actively seeking God. He can even remember the day when he read Psalm 119, verse 71, I thank God for my affliction, for it taught me your statutes. Christian, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but your depression is not for your destruction. It's for your salvation. Your miscarriage is not for misery, but is for glory. Sin, suicide, adultery, fear, pain, illness, and every other good thing that comes to us in this life, we are told by some hidden mystery of providence will be made to work for your good. Paul does not mean health, wealth, and happiness. I said it last week, but I say it again. God's number one goal is not to make you happy. It's to get you to heaven. 
when Paul says good, he means God's greatest good. Revealed in verse 29. That God's great purpose for you is that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. He is the God of all good gifts, but there is no greater good than to become like Jesus. And there's actually a beautiful word picture here in verse 29. I'm going to say a word in Greek, but you will probably be able to pick up the English word there. Paul says, to be conformed to the icon. It's where we get our English word icon of His Son. An icon means the likeness of. A picture of someone else. For example, Michelangelo's David is an icon of what he thinks David would look like. Michelangelo took a big slab of marble and he chipped away and he chiseled and he refined until it looked like David, or at least what he thought it looked like. This is what God is doing in your life. Not to make you look like David. Not to make you look like Pastor Jacob. But He is chiseling away at your character. He is sanding down your words. He is chipping at the rough edges of your thoughts and your actions to make you like Christ. We need to understand as God's people that He is not about just our earthly good. God is concerned with the greatest good, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This isn't a promise that God's just got your back in this life. This is the promise that He is going to refine you. He is going to knock off your edges. He is going to sand you down to prepare you for glory. All things work together for the greatest good. Something that's gone up in the last few years, the United States, Canada as well, is this phenomenon of increased anxiety. But he who loves God is called according to his purpose should be assured that everything that comes to him is for his good. Why do we destroy ourselves? Thomas Watson says, why should we kill ourselves with care when all things shall sweetly concur and conspire for our good? Anxiety comes when life goes wrong, but if God works all things together for good, life never goes wrong. There's no such thing as chance. The universe is not random. Our Father is in control. Christian, you don't need to fear the circumstances of life. Or that life will ever go wrong. Paul says life will always be for your good. And all things here, Paul says in verse 28, all things work together for good, includes, listen to this, backsliding and sin. 
Now, sin is always bad. And we will always regret sin. But God's grace is greater than our sins. He can take even the most wretched thing that cost the Lord His blood and use it for good. God can take sinfulness. And sometimes He will even allow us to fall into sin. The Westminster Confession says, so that He can humble us. To show us the corruption of our hearts. But to raise us up to a closer and more constant dependence upon Him. When Paul says all things, he means all things for good. As we turn to our second point, the undefeatable plan of God, I need to make a confession this morning. I am a Calvinist. I believe that God is sovereign. And that He is sovereign, yes, even over the subject of salvation, choosing an eternity past, who would know Him and love Him and embrace Him and leaving others in their sin and perdition. I'm not ashamed of this. Because that is the reason. Paul grounds the whole hope of the promise in the assurance that God's purposes will come to fruition. There is an undefeatable, there is an unbreakable plan of God that has existed from before the world was created and will exist all the way until that last day in Christ the Lord. This is what the Puritans called the golden chain of salvation. That God has a plan. But if everything is left to chance, I want to suggest to you that there is no assurance. If we say that God is not sovereign and not in control, how can we know that all things work for good? But God assures us that He does have a plan. A chain forged in eternity past that runs through our lives and is fastened and bound in heaven. And really, this chain has three links. There's three things Paul teaches us about salvation. That salvation is something of a past, in the past, foreknowledge and predestination. There is salvation present in our lives, calling and justification. And there is also salvation future when Paul speaks of being glorified. And notice that all aspects of our salvation are all of grace. They're all of grace. And Christian, you need to know this morning that God has a plan for your life. Rooted in eternity past. Whatever evil comes upon you in this life, God will not lose. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion and not one of these chains, not one of these links will ever be broken for those of God's people. 
Notice with me, salvation past. Paul says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. These are the first few links of the chain. And there should be no question here that Paul is referring to something that has happened in the past. Boys and girls, before you were born, before you were even a thought in your parents' mind, the Bible said that God had a plan of salvation. Paul begins with this idea of foreknowledge. And right away we should mention here that there has never been a word that has produced more difference and more fighting amongst the church than this word. In fact, in the 1500s, there was almost a civil war in the Netherlands over this very word, which resulted in the famous Synod of Dort. And by and large, in the United States today, the majority of people, when reading this verse about foreknowledge, interpret this to mean God's knowing before time. The common idea, the popular idea here, is that God looks down the tunnel of time before He creates. He sees who will choose Him, and He predestines them based on foreseen faith. This was famously taught by a theologian in the Netherlands named Jacob Arminius. Good first name, but bad theology. And congregation, this is blatantly false teaching. I'm going to give you four reasons why this is false. The first reason is because God has never learned anything. God already knows all things. Certainly, He knows beforehand who will choose Him. But to suggest that He has to look into the future to choose who will, or to see who will choose Him, means that there's something He doesn't know. That He's gaining knowledge. This cannot be. Second, if foreknowledge means foresight, who would choose God? Paul's already said in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, if you flip back there, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. God would have looked down the corridor of time and seen that nobody chose Him. And third, this passage says, does not say those whom He foresaw. It says those whom He foreknew. As Charles Spurgeon said, If God looked down the corridor of time and foresaw me, He wouldn't have liked what He saw. But the fourth point is the most important. Because the idea that God predestines based on foreseen faith is not a true reflection of what this word means. There is a pregnant meaning in that word foreknew. Of course, the word for, that prefix, simply means beforehand. But no, that word no, all throughout the Bible is synonymous with the word love. No is synonymous with the word love. Let me prove it to you. Flip in your Bibles to Genesis 4. All the way to the first um, book of the Bible, the first 
couple or family in the Bible, Adam and Eve, we read in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. I'm not going to describe to you what this means. You know what it means. If you don't, ask your parents. But Moses is describing an intimate, loving relationship between Adam and Eve. When you come to the New Testament, it's the same principle. Go to Matthew 1, verse 25. In the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 25, where we read that Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth to a son. What does it mean to know Mary? Well, he knew her name. He knew her parents. He knew where she lived. He knew what she looked like. You see, to know has nothing to do with an intellectual knowledge, but what is being described here by Moses and described here by Matthew is an intimate, personal, loving relationship. Flip back to Romans 8. What is Paul saying? We could translate verse 29 for those whom He chooses to love. Those whom He chooses to love. What this means is that it was God who chose to lay His hands on me and save me. Jesus said, it's not you who have chosen I, but I who have chosen you. God chose the church long before the church ever chose Him. God loved us before we loved Him. And out of the fallen mass of ruined sinners, He predestines them to choose Him. Pre, again, means before. But destined speaks of the destination or the goal. The Greek can even mean horizon where the sun meets the circumference of the earth. The idea here is that before your journey even started, before you were even a thought in your parents' mind, before the fall, before the world, God had determined your greatest horizon. He had determined your destination. He had plotted out the way for you. Now, of course, we'll deal with predestination more so in Romans chapter 9. But Paul's point is that it is the guarantee of salvation. You see, Satan is going to throw things at you to try to mess up your life. Satan is going to throw sin at you. He's going to throw trials at you. Frustrations and different things that are going to seek to knock you off your way. But God doesn't just love you. He has determined every step of your life so that He can have you. Steve Lawson says, predestination is like God pouring concrete on the whole process. That's what predestination is. It's the irrevocable, eternal counsel of God Almighty from before time again 
began, never to be thwarted, never to be undermined, never to be altered or rerouted. All things work for that good in the believer's life. Paul says there's salvation present. That's the second thing he draws our attention to, is that God actually accomplishes this in time. So, foreknowledge and predestination are before time in eternity, but calling and justification are in our present lives. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And that word call means to utter in a loud voice. Think of it like a summons. If you've ever been summoned to court, you know that your name has been chosen and now you have to show up. It's the same idea. That in eternity past, God circled your name in His book. He's called you. He's chosen you. You must show up. He will bring salvation to bear on your life. And notice these things about the call in verse 30. The author of the call is He referring to God the Father. Second, the recipients. He's not calling everyone, but He's calling those whom He foreknew and those whom He predestined. And notice the power. It's a loud voice. Just like Jesus said to Peter. Oh, Peter. Simon Peter. Simon. He is calling you. Jesus said, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. It's a powerful calling. And it's done in two ways. The preacher stands before you and says, repent and come to Christ. Or maybe your dad around the dinner table saying, confess your sins. Come to Christ. Your catechism, your Bible study teacher calling you, come to Christ. That call goes to everyone. doesn't matter who you are. But then there's a second part. The Holy Spirit has to come and apply it to your heart. Are you being called this morning? Is God calling you through this sermon to come to Jesus? In your heart, may the Spirit apply it to you. That external call needs to go to everyone. But that internal call needs to be between you and the Lord. And those whom He calls, He justified. That at that moment you respond to God. When a man and a woman, or a woman forsake their wicked ways and they turn and they embrace Jesus as Lord by faith, Paul says at that very moment they are justified. It is as if they had never sinned or been a sinner. At the moment of God's internal call, it could have been, again, at family devotions, at church, or just at home with an open Bible. At that moment, all sins are washed away. Your sins were as scarlet, and now you are as white as snow, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. And once you are justified, the purpose of God is made absolutely clear. Those whom He justified, 
he also glorified. Did you notice here that every single link of this chain is in the past tense? Justified. Glorified. Predestined. Called. They're in the past tense. Because even though you are not in heaven yet, in the mind of God, it's a done deal. That for those who receive not just the external call, but that internal call, they are predestined. It is irrevocable that God will justify them and glorify them. You will be perfect in body and in soul. What this means is that every ache and pain, illness and sickness, and short of Christ's return, we'll all die. But our Lord is coming again. And when He returns, He will bring the new heavens and earth with Him, and our bodies will need to be perfectly adapted to that new environment. So the Bible tells us when that trumpet sounds, you will not be resurrected with your aches and pains. You will not be resurrected with your bad knees or cancer. But you will have a glorified body. You will have new eyes to see your Savior, new ears to hear His voice, new arms and embrace Him, new feet to dance in His presence and to serve Him. And you will also have a glorified soul. And by that I mean completely pure. The remaining sin will be completely eradicated. Never to have a selfish thought. Never again to be jealous. Never to be filled with envy. Our sanctification will be complete. There will only be holy, pure, undefiled thoughts and affections in heaven. Yea, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. The chain was forged in eternity. He looked at that fallen creation and rather than forsaking them all, in His mercy and in His love, He chose you. No matter what Satan brings to your life, no matter what evil befalls you or sins trip you up, if you are in Christ, that is your inheritance. On that last day, not any evil thing will be working against you. All will be for good. This golden chain, by a word of application, should also be a golden hammer. There's no place for pride in the church. We didn't manufacture our own good, the good of our children, or the good of our church. The only reason all things work for good is because God is intimately involved in every aspect of our life. And this should give us security, assurance. God's promise is that if you are His child, He is holding on to you. In heaven, we will look back on all of our lives and we will say it was not I who held on to Christ. It was He who held on to me. This is the great good. Begun now and will be finished 
when we are glorified. Nothing shall thwart God's plan. All things work for good. In two weeks, we'll take up the subject of the unfathomable depths of God's love. May He bless this word to our hearts. Amen. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word, which is always good and always true. Though at times we do not feel that all things work for good, what a sweet and awesome truth that you have loved us. So much so that you would orchestrate all things in this life, everything we endure as Christians for our good. No evil befalls us apart from the will of God that will not be changed to produce an eternal weight of glory for us. Encourage us by these words, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.